0: Good morning. Hello. So um, if you do have a Bible, um, you might want to open it to to Matthew, chapter 15. We'll be getting into that in a moment. A couple of weeks ago, um, a guest speaker here um, called Brian Blount shared this incredible story and it all began when a friend called him up and asked him the question, how is your faith today? And I want to start by asking you that question. And specifically, um, if there's anyone here who would say, you know, is anyone here who would say, I have got great faith today? Okay, it's pretty good. Most of you are like, I'm not putting my hand up because what's he going to ask me to do? (laughs) Or you might have been thinking, what does great faith look like anyway? And um, that's what we're going to look at in in this story, an example of great faith in Matthew's gospel. It says, uh, chapter 15, verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed in that moment. It's probably helpful to highlight in this story that at this point in Jesus' ministry, um, it's it's likely that he'd come to this region um, that was about 50 um, miles north of Israel um, because he was probably trying to get away from the escalating and slightly hysterical reaction of people to his ministry. Um, He'd been attracting a lot of attention as he'd been going about. His fans wanted to try and um, make him king, whilst the Pharisees, the religious authorities, they were becoming increasingly unsettled by this this radical teacher who they saw as, as a threat to them. And so maybe for these reasons, or maybe just for some rest, Jesus withdraws. He travels north to this, to this region that was, was in sort of like modern-day Lebanon. They'll, they'll put it up on a map, I think, outside of Israel, um, to a place where, where Gentiles lived, the people that, um, that the Jewish people would have called the unclean people. And it's here that he, he, um, he encounters this Gentile woman who is so desperate to get to him, that he then responds to her and, and describes her as having great faith. And the first characteristic of her great faith that I want to highlight this morning is that, is that great faith, certainly in her case, faces up to barriers. You see the number of obstacles that she has to climb over to get to Jesus. Um, firstly, just think about, from a social point of view, what it must have took to do what she did that day. She comes out into the street in front of her community, crying, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. She's publicly laying bare this quite shameful truth that her daughter is is demon-possessed. I can't imagine what that must have felt like to do that. I mean, I um, I got really embarrassed when I had to go to the chemists and ask for a family pack of deworming tablets. Um, that was pretty humiliating. I consider driving to like Derby to go to a chemist there. But this, can you, this is beyond awkward. She cries out to him, son of David. This was Jewish language for the coming Messiah. And maybe at this point she's trying to flatter him. Maybe somehow she recognises something of who Jesus is. But, but what's clear is that she recognises there is also an ethnic barrier between her and him. For centuries, the people that lived in this region um, had lived next door to Israel, and they had experienced long-standing social divisions and tensions. And, um, and Jesus' initial response to her seems to reinforce that barrier, doesn't it? It's, I don't know if you found it quite startling. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. But she continues towards him. She falls at his feet. She's desperate. Lord, help me. There are barriers between her and Jesus, but she just doesn't care. And the great faith that Jesus sees in her is willing to face up to all these obstacles and barriers. Now, I don't know um, what your circumstances are like. I doubt that many of us have similar experience to this lady. But I do think that like her, we face barriers and obstacles in our journey of faith. We face social barriers like her. You know maybe for some of us, perhaps you would like to be more committed and radical in your faith, but you're worried about about what people around you might see and think, what your friends and your neighbors might might see, and it's 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 a social barrier. or it may be that that sometimes the, thing, that the next step in our journey of faith is that we just need to seek help, but we don't want people to see our need, do we? our weakness. For example, we might think on a Sunday, if I come down the front for prayer, people will see that I'm broken or, or, or there's something that, that I need. If I ask my small group to pray for me, if I ask for, for help in some way, people will know and I'll be vulnerable. But this woman, she realises that she needs Jesus more than she needs social dignity. Sometimes, I think the barrier that, that we face is our own feelings of inadequacy and unworthiness it might be like her that we sometimes feel like a bit of an outsider not the type of person that Jesus wants to meet or use and it may be that we don't feel worthy sometimes because of our past I remember getting to know um, a guy once who was he was let's just say he didn't have a squeaky clean, clean lifestyle. He was a bit of a rough character. Um, and, um, but he, he, really, when we talk, he really admired the idea of church. And he was, he was really positive about things like what we do at the Arches. He, he, he liked the idea of that. But when I invited him here on a Sunday, he said, if I went to church, I'd probably burst into flames the moment I walked in that building. And despite my reassurance, I couldn't convince him that he was actually worthy to set foot in this place. Sometimes that's the barrier, our own sense of unworthiness. Or sometimes the barrier that we face is that the situation just simply seems impossible or hopeless. Um, An example of this for me, I often feel this way um, when I'm praying for people who have long-standing mental health issues. Um, it's really encouraging to hear that announcement about that event that's coming up, um, the honesty over silence one. Because um, sometimes when people, I, 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 when, I, when I'm talking to somebody who's experiencing mental health issues, so often I feel like I just don't know what's helpful or what's detrimental to their situation. And just um, earlier this week, I was praying with a friend who's not part of this church, who um, is suffering ill mental health, and they have been for a long time. And I found that I had the faith to pray for their circumstances and I had the faith to pray that they would know God's peace. But I realised as I was praying that I, I struggled to actually pray that they would be completely healed. Because somehow to me it just feels like too big. They've been suffering for so long and I just haven't got the faith for it, I realised in the moment. Or similarly, I can think of, of friends, um, some, perhaps some of my old schoolmates, who, um, you know, as, again, as I was writing this, I, I realised and I confess that I rarely pray for them to come to know Jesus anymore because it just feels like, after all this time, a bit of a non-starter. It feels like, for them, coming to know Jesus would involve so much upheaval in my life. It just seems too big a prayer because their lifestyle is so different. And you may have friends that you feel that way about too. And so there are loads of different barriers that we face. But I think what's interesting is that this woman, she faced most if not all of these barriers, but in this encounter to Jesus, ultimately, they didn't matter. When he saw her faith, those barriers came tumbling down. I love, um, as I'm reading it, to imagine, because it all happens quite quickly, doesn't it? I'd love to imagine the disciples' reactions during this little encounter in this story, because at the start, they're sort of urging Jesus to send this Gentile woman away. Um, And then when Jesus... Um, I always, when Jesus says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, I can imagine Peter and the disciples standing next to Jesus and sort of saying, yeah, you, you heard the man, come on, jog on, love, move on now. But then she replied, yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And I can imagine their eyes would have then just swung back to Jesus and been like, is she, is she allowed to say that? I don't know. How does this work? But Jesus, to their surprise, is delighted with what she said. He commends her faith. He heals her daughter. And of course, probably at that point, they were just thinking, what, what, what just happened? Why did he help this woman? What is it about her response that brings those barriers down? And I've got two um, things that I want to focus on in her response. Great faith, faith that breaks down barriers, Stays humble but is also confident before Jesus. Um, do you notice in her humility, in that moment, she chooses not to take offense at Jesus when he pushes her back. Um, she acknowledges that he is the Lord um, and, and so she acknowledges that it's his prerogative to do as he pleases. She recognizes that he has a bigger and a wider commission at hand. So she's very humble, but at the same time, do you notice she's also confident? She is expectant. She believes, if this man is the Messiah that I hope he is, if he is as good as he is supposed to be, then I can approach him with no fear. If you are the master, she says, even if I am the dog, then your table will be a safe place for me. So let's look at these two qualities, humility and confidence in turn. Humility. As I say, considering her circumstances, I think her poise... And control in this moment is pretty incredible, isn't it? It appears that Jesus is denying her help based on her race. Um, it's like the opposite of the story of the Good Samaritan at that point. And, of course, she could have got offended at that point. She could have cursed Jesus and walked away. She could have got on her smartphone, on Twitter, and called him out. Just been denied help by at Jesus because I am a Gentile. Hashtag boycott Jesus. She could, that's what we would do nowadays, isn't it? Because effectively, he's, he's called her a dog, um, which um, was derogatory language that Jewish people would have used in that region at that time to describe outsiders. It was offensive language, And um, there are some commentators who say that actually, if you look at the word that Jesus used, it might have been slightly softer language, um, but there's no getting around it, is there? And you might have been wondering, why did Jesus do that? Why why did he use that phrase? And in fact, for that matter, why did Matthew leave it in the gospel? Because, you know, when you think about it, the story would have still been a really good story without that slightly awkward line, wouldn't it? And um, by the time that Matthew wrote this gospel, about 30 years later, the church at that point would have been made up of Jewish both Jewish people and people from Gentile backgrounds and so it must have occurred to him you know how is that dog quote going to go down with the Gentiles he must have had a good reason to include it and Jesus must have had a good reason to say it but what is it did Jesus well let's, let's, did Jesus say it because he was actually prejudiced well I think we can safely answer that question just by putting this comment into the context of some of the wider facts that we know about Jesus. So for a start, we, know, we see that at the end of the story, he does heal her daughter. Also, um, we can recognise that this is one of several accounts in the Gospels um, where Jesus um, interacts with people outside, uh, Gentile people, uh, breaks social taboos and, carry, um, and, and constraints to interact and help them. Um, Also, if we zoom out a little bit further, um, in the Bible, we see that Jesus later commissions his disciples in the book of Acts to go and share the gospel, not just with the Jewish people, but with the whole world. And of course, as we look at the whole message of the New Testament, we see that Jesus is the savior of the whole world. He laid down his life for the world, for the Jews and the Gentiles, for all of us. And you don't die on a cross for somebody that you hold prejudice towards. So I think it's pretty straightforward. We can conclude that Jesus had no animosity or prejudice towards this woman, only love and affection. So, so why did he sort of say what he did? Well, I think primarily he said it because it was, it was effectively true. It was a reminder, really, that Jesus, at that point in time, was engaged in a mission. He was engaged in the business of fulfilling God's promises Um, through his ministry. You know, we often talk when we look at the Bible, don't we, about how how Jesus fulfills in the New Testament lots of the Old Testament prophecies and and predictions. And it had been prophesied that the Messiah would come for his people, he would bring salvation to the world, but he would do it through Israel. So there was like a strategy being played out in his ministry. He was to come first to preach to the Jewish people, and then, only after that, Jesus would. Um, after that, the Holy Spirit would come and empower the church, uh, Jesus followers, to take the message beyond that to the world. Um, there's a theologian, um, Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, who who writes about this, and he says at this point we are at a point where Jesus' fundamental mission is being defined. He wasn't simply a travelling doctor whose task was to heal every sick person he met. But he continues, what he had come to do, as he said in Matthew 5, is not abolish the law, but fulfill it. Not to do away with the category of Israel, God's chosen people, but to fulfill the purpose this people existed in the first place. In God's new life, if God's new life was to come to the world, it would come through Israel. And that's why Israel had to hear the message first. If Jesus and his followers had simply begun an indiscriminate mission to the wider world, before God's purposes had unfolded, they would have made God out to be a liar. That's why Jesus, uh, so in conclusion, if you missed all that, that is why Jesus himself and his followers at his instruction limited their work almost entirely to the Jewish people. The message of the kingdom and and God's mission to save the world was to come through Jesus, first to Israel, then onto the world. And this is something that Paul, um, the New Testament writer, later explained to the church in Rome. He said, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So that hopefully explains some of the reason why he said what he said. But the ironic thing, though, when you look at the stories of Jesus' life, is that often Jesus was amazed at the lack of faith that the israelites had the jewish people had particularly the religious elite and conversely the two occasions in the in the, in the new testament where he does seem to be genuinely impressed by people's faith um, were people outside the jewish community one was this roman centurion um, that had, in a different story and one was this woman in this story and so perhaps another reason why jesus resisted her and pushed back on her request was because he was giving her the opportunity to demonstrate the great faith that he knew was in there. He was kind of like teeing her up, giving her the chance to demonstrate not just to him, but to the, to the gawking neighbors who were watching on this spectacle, to the disciples who were stood there telling her to jog on, and to us today as readers to see that, that great faith, the kind of faith that really does break down barriers, stays humble. Great face stays humble. And I think this is a really important lesson for us in our age because we do live in a culture, don't we, that, that is quick to take offense nowadays. In recent years, we've seen the emergence of what they're calling call out culture in the news and on social media. Um, a society that increasingly says, you know, if you disagree with me politically, if you read a different paper to me, if you hold different views about race or veganism or gender or sexuality or the environment, or whatever it is, if you disagree with me, that's just not okay. And I find that slightly offensive. That's the way our society tends to communicate now. And of course, let's not pretend as Christians that we're not particularly different. We're not guilty about this like everyone else. Let's not pretend that we don't roll our eyes self-righteously when we hear a particular politician's name or when we read about the latest bit of legislation that's been drafted or talk about the generation that's either side of our own. We can get judgmental too. Let's not pretend that we each are the embodiment of humility because the only person in this room who is, is my wife, obviously. (laughs) Happy Valentine's Day. But but of course, the lesson here for you and I is that that this great faith, faith that breaks barriers down, retains a posture of humility, even in conflict situations. Because when we choose to take offense and point the finger, we end up putting barriers around ourselves. This woman could have got cross in that moment. She could have called him out. But if she had, her daughter wouldn't have been healed. And in the same way, the gospel will not advance without humility then if you've ever been involved um, if you've ever been involved in an alpha course here you'll have seen that barriers to jesus come down in that context not when we're arguing and confronting people but it's as we engage in humility when we value people's opinions and experience um, or in the same i heard an example this week round at the arches um, coffee lounge the team spent some time discussion time with some of the clients exploring this question what does Jesus mean to you just this week and at the end of the discussion one of the team uh, closed in prayer and at that point one lady stood up um, and she said well I'm an atheist but there's something about this place the atmosphere is different at which point one of the one of the team seized the moment and uh, pulled a bible off the shelf and shoved it in her hand and went take this read this Now, I don't know if you've ever shoved a Bible into the hands of an atheist. Um, As a rule, they don't usually accept it with gratitude as she did in that moment. What had brought that barrier down? Well, I believe it was because of her, as she said, experience of this place and these people, these people who who weren't judgmental but accepting. This place that demands nothing from you but, but gives and serves and does it all with a posture of humility. Great faith breaks down barriers with humility. And finally, as we turn back to the story, great faith is confident before Jesus. As I um, mentioned, I, I suspect that this was one of those moments where the disciples um, were just confused. Like, why, Every time we think we've got Jesus figured out, he goes and does something that we don't expect. Why is he helping this Gentile woman? The whole thing to them must have made little sense. But from our perspective, um, you know, much time later, um, I think the woman's response seems to demonstrate that she understood more about Jesus' mission, ultimately, than than they did, than the disciples did. Because she seems to recognise that he had the power and the authority to save not just them and the people around him, but, but people like her, people like on the other side of the world, like you and me, because in her, in, in her posture, she's expressing a longing for a time and an age, really, when, when God's grace and favor would be available not just to the Israelites, but to the world beyond, to people like her and to people like you and I. An age when God would tear the curtain that separated his people from himself and dismantle whatever barriers we face between him, whether it's social barriers, ethnic barriers, cultural barriers, spiritual barriers, and of course, the barrier ultimately of sin. And, and, and she's really urging this master, she's coming to him and urging him to fast forward the coming of that age. She's saying, would your kingdom come effectively? Although she doesn't use that words. And so her great faith is it's kind of fragile, but it's profound. It's it's desperate, but at the same time it's dignified because she recognizes that he is Lord. She comes to him in the midst of this personal crisis and somehow articulates her need for undeserved kindness, her need for God's grace, her need for the gospel. She's humble but she's also confident because she sees that even if he is the master and she is the dog, she can still come with confidence to his table and his crumbs will be more than she needs. And this is a little, just a little snapshot, really, of how the gospel works. This is how salvation works. When we first come to Jesus and receive his forgiveness and, and, and receive our salvation... This is how we come to him. We come to him with a posture of humility that befits our brokenness. But we come to him with a posture of confidence that befits his goodness. As John Wimber used to say, thereafter, the way in is the way on. Humility and confidence, that's the posture of great faith. Faith that breaks down barriers will be both of those things. It reminds me, there's a a centuries-old prayer in the Anglican book of prayer that you're probably familiar with, or perhaps familiar with, sorry, called the Prayer of Humble Access, that's often prayed um, around when sharing the the Lord's Supper. And it says, um, We do not presume to come to, to your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs from under your table, but you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. It's a beautiful prayer, and it reflects the Christian posture. In I was thinking about this. Sometimes when, when, when preparing talks like this, in the days before, of course, you're trying to sort of stay open to what God might want to say, listening to him for his guidance and affirmation. And I felt like he did a bit of that this week, actually, at, um, in our small group. We were worshipping together in the living room, and we had a great time. And the, ho- the presence of the Holy Spirit just fell in the room as we were worshipping, and people started just praising out to God, just prayers of thankfulness. It's really cool. And this one lady, she just started praying, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God, that we don't just get the crumbs. Thank you that we can come to your table. And she just, for for, for like a couple of minutes, just kept on praying that over and over again. Thank you, God, that we can come to your table. Thank you that we can come to your table. And, And it really struck me that, of course, we can. We live in the age after this, the, 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 the age that this woman was really longing for. We are the recipients of the message of the gospel, the message that Jesus died so that we can come and eat at his table, not as dogs, but as it says, as his children, as his friends, with a confidence. That's how we get to come to him. It reminds me... Um, I can think of one or two times in my life when I've been a guest at a wedding, you might have had this yourself, where you kind of know the bride and groom, but not super well. Have you ever had that? And um, on arrival at the reception, I've walked up to that, you know, they have the seating plan. And for a few horrible moments, I can't find my name on the seating plan. And I'm thinking, oh, no did I misread the invitation? I've actually just got one of those evening-only invites and I'm not supposed to be here. Has anyone ever had that? Or do you all just actually read the invitation properly? You probably do. I think sometimes, as Christians, that's how we feel about coming to Jesus. That's the way we feel about his kingdom and his presence. And that's the way we feel about heaven. There's part of us that wonders, like, am I really supposed to be here? Am I really welcome but with, but with Jesus, it's the opposite of that. It really is the opposite of that. In the book of Revelation, right at the end of the Bible, it paints this picture of, of, the, of the return of Jesus, the future coming of Jesus, the final and complete coming together of Jesus and the church. And it uses the picture of a wedding, um, a feast, uh, where Jesus and the church will, will come together finally and completely like uh, a bride and a groom. And it says on that day, the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come. Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. This will not be the kind of wedding where you kind of get an evening only invite. You know, on that day, the truth is there will be people who will not, accept the invitation to the wedding there'll be people who through their life never reach a point where they can come to Jesus with a posture of humility acknowledging their brokenness and they never find themselves able to come to Jesus placing confidence in his goodness and his grace and those people they will not be at that wedding but to those as it says who hear to those who respond to the message of Jesus they will be able to come freely and this won't be the kind of wedding where you feel out of place it'll be more like the wedding of a best friend where you just walk straight past that seating plan and you just plonk yourself down next to the groom and you eat and you drink and you laugh and everything's free you don't need to turn up with a gift wrapped box of denby crockery to justify your presence at that wedding you're there You're there as his guest. You don't need to justify it. You can come with confidence, not in your goodness, but in his, not because of our worthiness, but his. And I feel like, you know, it might be that, yes, there are a few of us here with great faith today, but I suspect there'll be others who are here more like me with something less than that and perhaps need reminding of this today. It might be that you're here, deeply aware that you're not in yourself worthy of God's generosity, like you've got no right to have your prayers heard, no right to come to him. Well, if this woman was able to come to him in the way that she did, then so can you and I, I believe. And so I'd just love to finish by sharing some lyrics from a song that we don't actually sing, I think, here, um, but it's called Come to the Table, and it just struck me it says the words some of the words say we all start on the outside the outside looking in this is where grace begins we were hungry we were thirsty with nothing left to give oh the shape that we were in just when all hope seemed lost love opened the door for us he said come to the table to the thief to the doubter to the hero and the coward to the prisoner and the soldier to the young, to the older, all who hunger, all who thirst, all the last and all the first, all the paupers and the princes, all who fail, you've been forgiven, all who dream, all who suffer, all who loved and lost another, all the chained, all the free, all who follow, all who lead, anyone who's been let down, all the lost, you have been found. All who've been labeled right or wrong, everyone who hears this song says, Come join the sinners who have been redeemed. Take your place beside the Savior now. Sit down, be set free, come to the table. Shui, if would you like to stand?